devil's behind it. But I've really struggled with this week's message. And uh, I think it's because I'm pretty certain Satan doesn't want anybody to hear it. And it's been very hard work. I had a lot of distractions already mentioned that work went practically berserk uh, last week. And uh, it was was very hard to put a lot of time into it. But I managed at nights to scribble out some notes. And uh, then yesterday, I spent hours on it and didn't end up going to bed until quite late. And I got up again early this morning. But um, that's just by way of saying, you know, most of the time, because I've been public speaking for years and years and years, I can put something together. But, you know, every now and then, it's just not easy. You've really got to push for a breakthrough. And this was one of those occasions. I woke up this morning with an absolutely crashing headache. And um, I'm okay now. But, you know, you just have to push through sometimes. And I remember when I was doing Christian radio years ago, there, there were times when... You walk up to the studio. We had a studio which was on a second second floor, and uh, on weekends she used to walk up the back the back entrance. And I can remember some some weekends, some Saturdays, I'd actually have to fight through a thickness that you couldn't see but you could feel. Every step was actually an effort because you were kind of pushing through this thickness, this opposition. And it was the same here. And, and I think it's because, see, Satan wants us to get works-oriented because it robs us of the fullness of the joy that is part of our inheritance as sons and daughters of the one true living God, as siblings of Jesus Christ. We are, in God's eyes, his brothers and sisters. And uh, when Satan can get us all tied up in works, kind of legalistic works, then he's able to rob us of our joy. And, and I promised last week that today I wanted to focus on the transition from works-based giving to grace-based giving. And you know, money is the one area that we all seem to struggle with more than in any other area. And so many of us end up falling into the trap of what you might call works-based giving or, or giving based on legalistic grounds. And you can't give with joy under those circumstances. The best you can do is tick a box and say, yep, this week I met my 10% or whatever target you happen to have. And, and I want to try to share something of my own experience And and one of the things that makes it difficult is that it is something that was personal to myself and not everybody's journey will be the same. And in addition to that, you do have to have a personal revelation, I believe. I don't think I can stand here and convince you based on eloquent arguments. There has to be a heart transaction. But I do want to share with you some scripture and some principles. But ultimately, I really do believe you have to submit to the Holy Spirit and see where the Holy Spirit takes you. I can remember once being in a, in a seminar on giving in the church and they were, they were visitors and 
They were fairly well-known people, and uh, they were they were very much majoring on the idea of the tithe. And a, a woman kind of put a hand up, and she said, "Excuse me, excuse me, could I ask a question, please?" And I said, "Sure, you can ask a question." She said, "I can't tithe. I, I haven't got enough money to tithe." And their response basically was, "You've got to tithe. You have to tithe." You've got to tithe. Find the 10% and God will bless you. And uh, I put up my hand and said, excuse me, <laughs> would you mind if I um, offer a bit of a response? And they said, no, that's okay. I actually knew this lady. And I said, I've just got one question for you. How much can you give with joy in your heart? That was rhetorical. I didn't say, you've got to tell me. But how much can you give with joy in your heart? Because that should be the standard, not 10%, as I hope I might have established over the last few weeks. And then I said to her, and then be open and see where God takes you. So you might just start off with $2. But be open to the guidance, to the moving of the Holy Spirit, and see where God takes you. And my advice is no different today. This would have to be at least 15 years ago, probably longer than that. It might be 20 years ago. My advice hasn't changed. And what I want to do is to, to work through some principles that might help you in the whole area of making a transition from works-based giving to grace-based giving. Now, the first point I want to make is really based on a realisation I had that was drummed into me in my early days as a, as a Pentecostal, and it's, it is this. We access the blessings, the provision of Deuteronomy 28 through faith. Now, how many people have actually heard a statement along similar lines at some point during their church life? That, you know, all those blessings... Deuteronomy 28 is well known as the, the chapter of the Bible that contains the blessings and the curses. And uh, we're, told, we're, we're told that we can access those blessings not by obeying the Old Testament law, but by having faith in Jesus Christ. I just want to read you Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 to 13, just so you can have in mind what these blessings are. Now, just before I do... Let me acknowledge that this was God speaking through Moses to the whole of Israel. And so at one level, these promises apply to a whole society. Well, I've, I've done some reading, and in particular, <laughs> last night, I found an article by an Old Testament theologian. It was published in a, a proper academic referee journal. And uh, he argued that because of Paul's teachings in the New Testament... The promises apply not only to Israel as a whole society, but also to Christians individually. And that's very important to understand. And if you have a look at the epistles, and one of the things that Greg Fritz, who hosts the um, programs we're watching on Saturday mornings, one of the things he says is that read the epistles, because the epistles really unlock the heart of God towards Christians today. And when you look at Paul's quotes from the Old Testament, his quotes are actually mostly in the context of individual 
application. So I can give you the reference for this theologian if you like, but his article is about 40 pages long and um, yeah, too long for me to print at home, eh, because I'll run out of ink in my printer. <laughs> but I, I, I just wanted to be really careful because one of, one of my <coughs> important principles as a, as a teacher, a Bible teacher here on Sunday mornings is I, I want to be very, very careful that I don't proof text. In other words, that I don't have an idea in my mind and then find a scrap of a scrap of scripture here and there to prove the point. I think that's a very dangerous way to teach. And so I'm avoiding actually using most of the quotes I've used over the past month or so in specific contexts. And I'm not using a whole lot of quotes that you hear pretty regularly in church because I actually think they're misapplied when you read them in context. And it's really important to read verses of the Bible in context, unless you get a personal revelation based on a scrap of scripture, and that does happen sometimes. But what is your personal revelation is not necessarily a revelation for the whole of the body of Christ. So we have to be very, very careful about just taking one verse or part of a verse and then building a doctrinal position on it. So let me have a look at uh, Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 13, and I'm actually reading from the New Living Translation, which I rather like. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all his commands that I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the world. You will experience all these blessings if you obey the Lord your God. Your towns and your fields will be blessed. Your children and your crops will be blessed. The offspring of your herds and flocks will be blessed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be blessed. Wherever you go and whatever you do, you will be blessed. The Lord will conquer your enemies when they attack you. They will attack you from one direction, but they will scatter from you in several, in seven, I should say. The Lord will guarantee a blessing on everything you do and will fill your storehouses with grain. The Lord your God will bless you in the land He has given you. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God and walk in His ways, the Lord will establish you as His holy people, as He swore He would do. Then all the nations of the world will see that you are a people claimed by the Lord, and they will stand in awe of you. The Lord will give you prosperity in the land He swore to your ancestors to give you, blessing you with many children, numerous livestock, and abundant crops. The Lord will send rain at the proper time from the rich treasury in the heavens and will bless all the work you do. You will lend to many nations, but you will never need to borrow from them. If you listen to these commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today, and if you carefully obey them, the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you will always be on top and never at the bottom. Now it's interesting to note that those blessings for Old Testament Israel were of course conditional upon fully obeying all his commands. Fully obeying all his commands. At the foot of Mount Sinai, the, uh, the, the, the tribe of Israel, Israel said, yeah, we, we can fulfill your commands, we can do it, no worries. You know, let us have them. <laughs> but of course we know historically 
that Israel was unable to keep, or unwilling in fact, when the going got hard, to keep all his commandments. So the Old Testament is very, very clear that in order to access the blessings of Deuteronomy 28, Israel had to obey all and all means all of his commandments. Switch to the New Testament, which of course applies to us today. It's not about obeying the law, but it is by faith in his grace by which we are saved that we enter into his kingdom. So the place of blessing, if you like, is in his kingdom. So we, by virtue of the fact that we have accepted God's grace because we believe in the efficacy of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And we have responded to his invitation. All who call on his name shall be saved. So, in thinking about this transition or, or this juxtaposition of that Old Testament law approach and the New Testament approach based on the grace of God, it occurred to me that in Matthew 6, verses 24 to 34, Jesus actually gives us a really important key. And instead of obeying the law, it is seeking the kingdom. Instead of obeying the law, it is seeking the kingdom. Now I want to read Matthew 6, 24-34. And I apologise, it's a longish quote, but it's very, very important, I believe, to put this in a context. So here's Jesus <coughs> speaking. Uh, there are crowds listening. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. For your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to Him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon, in all his glory, was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. 
So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. So here Jesus is saying, God already knows everything you need. God has already provided everything you need. All you need to do is to enter into the kingdom. Seek the kingdom. Seek it first. Above all else. That's not about obeying rules. It's not about living a life legalistically. It's about relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's how you seek the kingdom. It's not what I call huff and puff. It's not hard work. It's not ticking off a list of things that you've done. It's not comparing yourself to other people. It's simply about relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That is how you enter the kingdom. So in all your seeking, seek a deeper relationship with Christ because through that relationship you will as it were, more fully enter into the kingdom. You see, it's a kingdom in which the law is already fulfilled. We know that Jesus Christ said of himself, I have fulfilled the law and the prophets. And we know that because there are many people who have been through all of the prophetic words about Jesus in the Old Testament and demonstrated how they actually came to pass during the life of Jesus on earth. Let me read to you from uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 20. And uh, this is about uh, Jesus' fulfilment of the law. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 20. As surely as God is faithful... Our word to you does not waver between yes and no. In other words, it doesn't prevaricate. It doesn't switch from one uh, response to another. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He is the one whom Silas, Timothy and I preach to you. And as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled. I'm having a bad day, aren't I? For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ our Amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. Ascends to God for his glory. This article that I was reading, this um, academic paper I was reading last night emphasised the fact Christ fulfilled all God's promises. In fact, not just the blessings of Deuteronomy 28, but the curses as well. And see, we're either in or out of the kingdom. In the kingdom, we access the blessings through faith in what God has provided because or through, or because of or through His grace. Outside of the kingdom, of course, we are subject to all of that the rubbish, all of the curses that are listed there in Deuteronomy 28. So how do we seek 
just exactly how do we do see because it's not meant to be works all right this is not about a works-based life this is about a grace-based life so jesus christ has fulfilled the law every bit of it the good the bad and the ugly so to speak and in him all the answers are yes and amen now what i want to do is to take you back if you can remember, I cheated, of course, because I went and had a look at my PowerPoint notes. But uh, way back in January last year, when we started talking about faith, remember God had spoken to me earlier in the year and said, I want you to talk about faith until you exhaust the topic. I think we've probably moved on a little bit from there now. But if we go back to January last year, I suggested this definition of faith. <laughs> faith is firm persuasion based on relationship with God through Jesus, producing a full acknowledgement of God's revelation of His truth. I'll read that again because it's not on a PowerPoint slide. Faith is firm persuasion based on relationship with God through Jesus, producing a full acknowledgement of God's revelation of His truth. Now, I just want to elaborate on that a little bit. And this is based on some new learning. Uh, we all keep learning, right? I, um, I, I do read the Bible, believe it or not. I read the Bible pretty regularly. Um, I love reading the Bible. I also listen to quite a few teachers. There's probably half a dozen or so I listen to quite a lot. And some I listen to are uh, really very good at apologetics. Now, apologetics is not actually apologising for being a Christian or anything like that, but it's actually defending the truth of the claims that Christianity makes. Now, many, many Christians think faith is just belief in something they don't really have any proof about, what some people call blind faith. But our faith isn't. You see... We can be very confident that we can relate to God through Jesus. We can be very confident of that. Because there is evidence. Not everyone would necessarily accept the evidence, but that's what happens often in juries, isn't it? Not everyone on a jury necessarily accepts the evidence. In John 14, 9, Jesus made this claim. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now that's a few words, but they are mighty important words. You see, if you have a look at the epistles, there are eyewitness accounts of what Jesus did and said. Okay? So the Bible is a historical record that sets out the life of Jesus, among many other things. I mentioned already that there are many prophecies in the Old Testament that we can demonstrate were fulfilled by the life and the death of Jesus Christ. Now you might think, well the Bible, what kind of standing does the Bible have? Well, well there are a number of arguments that we can put in defence that the Bible is a true record 
It's not mythological. It's not all written in poetic language. Some of it is. But there is a lot of evidence to suggest that the Bible is trustworthy because it's historically accurate. Um, Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a... Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Now, Ainsley had used that as a textbook in high school. Uh, high school, I think it was, yeah. And she passed it on to me. Now, his son, Josh McDowell's son, Sean, together with Josh, have uh, developed a, a, a second edition of that book. Because between the original writing of the book and today, a whole lot more evidence has come to light that adds to the weight of evidence overall that the Bible is a trustworthy historical record. I've heard uh, Sean McDowell interviewed a number of times and uh, I don't actually have the updated book because we're, we're, we're trying not to buy too many more books because we've got nowhere to put them. But, um, you know, if, if somebody says to us, oh, look, the Bible's just a heap of myths. No, it isn't. There's hard evidence that you can regard the Bible as a trustworthy source. So you and I have not literally seen Jesus. We have not walked with Jesus, but people who did have recorded their experience in the Bible, the Gospels, for a start. So you see, our faith is not a blind faith. It in fact is trust based on evidence. Now we also have personal evidence, of course, because as we make that decision, to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we get the personal revelation of who God is. But one of the things that, just as a little aside, there's a new way that atheists use now to attack Christians. It's called street epistemology. And I'm actually probably going to talk about it next week because I'm really fired up on this. The... Um, the, the strident atheist critics of Christianity like, like Dawkins and Harris and, and uh, Hitchens and a few others, Hitchens, not, not um, it's Peter, not Christopher. I get it mixed up. One's a Christian and one isn't. The one who isn't a Christian is dead now, so he's in a lot of trouble. But anyway, um, they haven't really won the day. One reason is they've been exposed because their history's rubbish. They don't get history right for a start. And they haven't been able, really, to provide any significant proof that you can't rely on the Bible as an historical document. And so the atheists have got another tactic now. It's called street epistemology. And what they come to understand is a lot of Christians are really shaky on why they actually believe. And a lot of Christians do think theirs is a blind faith because you can't see God, you can't see Jesus. But I'm telling you, it's not blind faith. It's a reasonable faith. Our faith, in fact, is a reasonable response to the evidence. It's not blind faith at all. So we've got that archaeological evidence. I've also mentioned there's internal evidence in the Bible, primarily through fulfilled prophecies and uh, witnesses who wrote about Jesus. 
Um, I've really talked about that already in terms of the gospel. But the other thing is there are external sources as well. Josephus, for example, is often quoted. He was an independent uh, historian and he wrote a lot about the life of Jesus. He had no special reason to write a bunch of lies. So there are also independent external sources to verify the historical accuracy of, of the Bible. It would have to be one <coughs> monstrous conspiracy for it all to be a rubbish. Like, how on earth could you maintain a conspiracy over, what, one thousand, one and a half thousand years of writing and 40 or, or so different authors? It, it, it's just unimaginable that anybody could, could actually do that. So, you see, our relationship with God through Jesus, it's one of trust. One of trust. And it's not an unreasonable faith. It's not blind faith. It's faith based on hard evidence. And this street epistemology attacks we Christians who don't really understand the idea of a reasonable faith that is a response to the grace of God that gives us access to his kingdom through <coughs> so what I'd like to do now is to turn from this to a brief discussion about an important principle in the Bible that I believe should drive not just our giving financially but our whole stance of generosity. In uh, right Back in Genesis, in Genesis 8, in fact, and, and I've, I've spoken about this in uh, relation to a fresh start. You might recall that the very first discussion point we had this year was uh, titled a fresh, a fresh Start, and I actually quoted from this. This is Genesis 8.22. Uh, this is right at the end of the blessing that God announces to Noah. After the flood, remember, Noah offers sacrifices to God. They're a beautiful aroma in his nostrils. And he basically reiterates the Adamic blessing. The only thing that he leaves out actually is um, the word subdue. Everything else is there except the word subdue. And right at the end, this is what God says, As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. Now, yes, that's got a, a physical meaning because you know, we can see that there's day and night and we understand that there are seasons. But there's a spiritual principle here as well because what happens in the natural is a reflection of what happens in the spiritual. So as long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest. Other translations say sowing and reaping. So this is a principle that God established way back in Genesis. In Mark 4, 26-29, this is what Jesus says about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, while he's asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and grows, but he does not understand how it happens. 
The earth produces the crops on its own. First a leaf blade pushes through, then the heads of wheat are formed, and finally the grain ripens. And as soon as the grain is ready, the farmer comes and harvests it with a sickle, for the harvest time has come. So he's likening the kingdom of God to sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. Oh dear Lord. I, I haven't touched alcohol for weeks. I promise you. I promise you. There's just something wrong with my tongue this morning. <laughs> oh dear, dear me. But, but here I think is direct evidence that Jesus is using a physical principle to explain a spiritual principle. In the kingdom of God, there is reaping and harvesting. If we uh, go on to Galatians 6, verses 6 to 10, and I have quoted from part of this uh, earlier in the, in the month, uh, earlier in February. Those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. That's us people who are committed to Jesus Christ. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. So here again, we see the spiritual principle of sowing and reaping. Now, it doesn't apply just to money. This is not just about money. This is about a principle for life. Are you a sower? That's a question each of us needs to ask before God. Am I a sower? Or do I go through life simply hoping to reap? Have to do both. Reaping, by the way, is work as well. I spoke about that earlier in February. Sowing and reaping. Jesus himself said this, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And I know I've quoted that a number of times in the last few weeks, but let me give a context. You'll find it in Acts chapter 20, verses 32 to 35. And this is Paul speaking. He says, And now I entrust you to God and the message of His grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those He has set apart for Himself. I have never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes. You know that these hands of mine have worked to supply my own needs and even the needs of those who are with me. And I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of, Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And I have somewhat flippantly said to people, do you want to live a more blessed life? If you want to give a more blessed life, then give. Have the heart of a giver, not a receiver. 
And remember, you have to work to reap the harvest. Luke 6, verse 38. This is Jesus again speaking to a crowd. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. Press down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. As I said at the outset, I can quote all this scripture. I can perhaps even eloquently build a case based on the evidence from the Word of God, but ultimately I believe that the transition has to be a spiritual transition and a work of the Holy Spirit in each of us individually. These are scriptures that, for me, over a period of probably a decade or more, brought me around, or I guess the Holy Spirit used them, to free me up from works-based giving to grace-based giving.